Well, good morning. How many of you were in Dr. Brian Murphy's um, lesson last week? Raise your hand. Good, super. Now, I'm not going to go back over that, but if you weren't, it'd be great for you to listen to that message because what it does is it orients you into the big picture of Christ in the Old Testament um, that we're studying even now as we go through Solomon's life. And it's just a great way to see how all the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And even as we study this morning, Christ is always in a focus of, of what the Old Testament is seeking to reveal um, through God's Word. So great study. Appreciated that. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, well, today what we're going to do is this is the last day of the kind of the biography of Solomon. So I'm going to try to pull together what we want to learn about Solomon and remember about Solomon as we go forward. Next week we'll begin the book of Proverbs. So really uh, what uh, we want to understand from Solomon's life is his relationship with God and how God orchestrated, was sovereign in the affairs that went on all through Solomon's reign. I think it gives us a great understanding of the attributes of our Lord and God. I want those to be clear, but I want us just to kind of review quickly and bring up to speed what we've seen of Solomon's life up to this point, because it's had some great highs, right? And then it's had an incredible low. And how do we think about that? So, um, you know, we began in 1 Kings 3, 3, where um, it said Solomon loved the Lord. This is as Solomon was 20 years old and become king, and he said he loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on high places. Solomon desired to trust the Lord. He loved the Lord, but he was still not completely understanding all that God would have him do. But it says in chapter 3, verse 4, that the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. And in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. So the, there were two times that the Lord appeared to Solomon. This was the first time. And he appeared to him in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Remember this? And what did Solomon ask for? What did he pray for? Well, as a 20-year-old young man, he showed great humility in that what he prayed for is that the Lord would give him wisdom. He says to the Lord, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king to sit in the place of my father David. Solomon understood that God was keeping his promise to David by bringing him to sit on his throne of his father. And he says, but I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Um, your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart. You know, Solomon, real early on, he understood this is a heart religion. This is not a legalistic, rote activity religion. This is God wants our hearts. Solomon got that. He said, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? And verse 10 says, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. So what a great start to this man's kingship, his rule. He starts by pleasing the Lord, and the Lord said to him, because you have asked for this thing, and not just for yourself, of long life and riches and life of your enemy, but you ask for discernment to understand justice. And behold, I've done according to your words, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, and no one will arise after you. I have given you both what you not ask both riches and honor, so that there will be not among you any king all of your days. But verse 14 says, if, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes, commandments as your father David walked, 
then I will prolong your days. Well, in chapter 6, we saw that after four years of Solomon's rule, he began to build the house of the Lord. And that became his uh, vocation, his, became his focus, uh, became everything that he worked on. For the next seven years, it says in chapter 6, verse 38, so he was seven years in building the temple of the Lord. And chapter 7 says, thus all the work King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished after seven years. And he dedicated uh, his father and the silver and gold and utensils were put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. So we have this picture. We went back and, and looked at how these things came about. That when David was transitioning out of the kingship, he and all the people of Israel had donated all the materials. Great, great giving happened at that time between King David and all of the nation of Israel to build the temple. It was all teed up. It was ready to go. And Solomon came in and used all of that, um, the plans, the, the uh, preparations, and the materials. And in seven years, he built the temple. Now it's 11 years into his rule, 11 years since the people had given. And they reassemble in chapter 8. All the people, the nation of Israel, reassemble with Solomon. They call him to Jerusalem, and they are uh, dedicating the temple. This is like the high point of Solomon's rule. It's like the spiritual high point of the nation of Israel. It's an amazing time. In chapter 8, it says, Solomon assembled all the elders of Israel, the heads of the tribes and the leaders, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was brought from the city of David. And King Solomon and all the congregation assembled before him, and they sacrificed many uh, sheep and oxen. It could not be counted. And the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant into the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. Um, there was no, you know, there, there was a, re, a renewal and a remembrance of the covenant that the Lord had made with Moses and the son of Israel when they came out of Egypt. It was a great time. And it says, when Solomon finished praying, that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Um, all the sons of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house. And they bowed down on the pavement. They hit the face to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly, God is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And the cloud, the glory of the Lord, filled the house of the Lord. Remarkable. Solomon prays this great prayer. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to his father David and fulfilled it with his hand. Again, praising God for his faithfulness to Israel. He says in chapter 8, verse 20, now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. Again, Solomon's in the right place in submission to the Lord, in humility before the Lord, um, where he prays then in, in chapter 8, verse 23, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or above on earth, being the, uh, keeping the covenant, showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And he, he asks the Lord, he says, listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day. Listen to the prayer which your servant will pray toward this place. And then he says, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people according to what he promised that not one of his words have failed of all his good promises which he promised through Moses, his servant. Solomon looks back 500 years and acknowledges that God has fulfilled, not one word has failed. He's fulfilled all of his promises. And then he prays for the nation. And he prays this way in chapter 8, verse 61. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, keep his commandments, 
as at this day. Wholly devoted. That's what Solomon wanted for himself. And that's what Solomon prayed for his people, for his nation of Israel. That they would be wholly devoted to the Lord our God. And what in a celebration, an explosion of praise from the people. Chapter 8, verse 66. At the end of the dedication of the temple, on the eighth day, he sent the people away. And they blessed the king. They went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. What a great place that nation was. In their relationship to the king, in their relationship to one another, and in their relationship to God. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? They were joyful. They were glad of heart. They were praising the Lord. It's just tragic that they didn't stay there. That was the pinnacle. And it goes down from there. It wasn't the pinnacle yet of all of the, um, the uh, reach of this nation. And it wasn't yet the pinnacle of the uh, economy and prosperity of the nation. That would continue to grow. Um, chapter 9, verse 3 uh, as Solomon says, the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your supplication which you've made before me. I have consecrated this house you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. This was the second time that God appeared to Solomon, but this time when he appears to Solomon, he's going to give him a warning. He says, look, Solomon, if you walk before me as your father David did in integrity of heart, and uprightness, according to all that I commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinance, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. Just as I promised your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But in this, in this appearance, the Lord gives Solomon a very clear warning. He says, but... If your sons indeed turn away from following me, if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me, and do not keep my commandments, my statutes that I set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the people. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. It's a very clear warning. Interesting that that would come about at a peak of, you know, the spiritual health of a nation. That God would give such a very clear warning about turning away from him. About turning toward other gods and worshiping other gods. And it's not the first time that God had warned kings in Scripture in Deuteronomy 17, 16, Moses had said, Moreover, king who's, the king who's made of Israel shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said, you shall never again return that way. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So there's very clear warning that Solomon was well aware of. Don't multiply horses, don't multiply women, and don't multiply wealth. Which of those things did Solomon do? He hit the trifecta. He did them all. And we see that, you know, as um, Solomon's empire grew and his economic reach 
work throughout the world. We looked at these maps when uh, it said in chapter 10, verse 23, King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. Horses, riches, and now, verse 11, last week, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely what? Turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 Wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Mass accumulation of horses, mass accumulation of wealth, and mass accumulation of women. You know what happened to the man that was wholly devoted to the Lord? Wholly devoted to the Lord. What has he now become wholly devoted to? Pursuing his sinful desires. What happened to Solomon? Verse 3, last week. And his wives turned his heart away. Well, that's what the Lord warned. And that's exactly what was the result of all these foreign women in his life. It says, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord as God, as the heart of David his father had been. What did it do to Solomon's heart? Twice it says it turned away, the third time not wholly devoted to the Lord. Solomon violated every warning given to him by the Lord. He tragically rejected God and pursued his own sinful desires. How did this happen? What happened to Solomon? So think with me for a minute. Solomon was once thankful to God. What had he become? Unthankful. Selfish. Totally absorbed on himself. Solomon had once been a humble man. What had he become? Proud. Who did he give credit to for his accomplishments? Himself. Solomon was once wise. What did he become? He'd become a fool. He had become a fool by following his own ideas. Solomon had once been content. How, what did he become now? Insatiable. Insatiable in his accumulation of Wealth and women. Solomon once feared the Lord. What did he become? Hardened to the conviction of sin, and he lost all fear of God. What will the Lord do to Solomon? Who was given such great privileges who the Lord appeared to twice, who was given wisdom and riches from God, who was given leadership of his nation. He was so devoted, but then he abandoned God to pursue sin. What will God do? This is our lesson for today. This is our outline. We're in the very last lesson of this um, overview of Solomon's life.
Our verse today is from 1 Kings eleven fourteen. It says, And the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. Hadad the Edomite, he was of the royal line of Edom. We'll look at that in a minute. Our theme is God will judge sin. He is faithful to keep his promise to discipline those who disobey his word and commit idolatry. Discipline. I want you to remember that word, okay? Discipline. In Hebrews 12, 5, it says this, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons that says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when, he, when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. That is a quote from the Old Testament. That is a quote from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Do you know who wrote Proverbs 3, 11 and 12? Do you? Solomon. Solomon wrote that. Is that not just amazing? Because what did Solomon forget? You know, he was one who forgot the exhortation to not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Discipline. You know, I, I was reading on that. Discipline is a word for chastisement, rebuke. But discipline is not the same as condemnation. Do we understand that? Discipline comes in the life of believers. Condemnation comes in the life of unbelievers. God disciplines his children but does not condemn them. Romans 8.1 says this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, discipline has to do with training and growth. Condemnation has to do with the, reject, the justice for the rejection of God's grace. Solomon is coming under the Lord's discipline. I've been asked that question several times. Do you think Solomon was a believer? Uh, yeah, I do. I do think Solomon was a believer. You look at how his relationship with the Lord and the way that he was totally, wholly devoted to the Lord, and the fact that he wrote three books of Scripture, that God used him to write three books of Scripture. Can a believer sin in the way that Solomon did? They can. It's, you know, it's, it, it, I, I know it's heart-wrenching, heartbreaking, unbelievable, but we have examples in Scripture of believers who fell, who sinned in that way. I mean, just, what, what happened with David? I mean, David kind of followed that same pattern, didn't he? He followed the same pattern of a man that um, was humble, but became proud. A man that feared the Lord, and then became hardened in his sin. I mean, this isn't the first picture of discipline that we've seen, certainly in Scripture. We've seen how God uses various methods of discipline. He may use trouble in our occupation, hardship at home, travail in ministry. God may allow us to experience loss, as happened with David. He may send physical ailments, even death. You remember the church at Corinth when they, when they were doing the Lord's Supper in an improper way? It says some of them died. But... The result of God's discipline is holiness and maturity in the life of a believer. So we're going to look at that today as we go through this. I, want, I wanted that to be in your minds and in your thoughts as, as we go through these verses because um, this is not God's condemnation of Solomon. This is God's discipline. And it's why it says, do not take lightly the Lord's discipline. Anyone that says to you, well, I'm a believer, and you know, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm going to go ahead and do this sin, but I know God will forgive me. That's not a believer. Because they don't understand that the consequences of their sin are disastrous. That's, no one 
intentionally determines to live in a pattern of sin if they're in Christ. That's what we've been studying in 1 John. But believers do sin. And Solomon certainly was there. Um, God gave him a clear warning, and he ignored it. But the Lord is faithful to discipline just as he warned. And the worship of other gods is detestable to God. It's rejected his sovereignty. It's ignored his warning. As a result, the consequences of sin will be terrible, but just. So look at uh, chapter 11, verse 14. We're going to read through verse 22. Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line of Edom, for it came about when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel stayed there six months until he'd cut off every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, while Hadad was a young boy. They arose from Midian, came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. Now Hadad found great favor before Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes the queen. The sister of Taphanes bore his son, Jenubath, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Jenubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David had slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Send me away that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, but what, but what have you lacked with me that, behold, you're seeking to go to your own country? And he answered, nothing. Nevertheless, you must surely let me go. So the Lord's going to bring adversaries from outside first, outside the nation of Israel. The Lord raises up a previous defeated enemy from Eden to oppose Solomon. And this, this previous defeated foe was Hadad, the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. Edom's on the southern border, right down here, okay? Southern border of Israel. And that's where um, this enemy is going to be raised up from. It says that when it came about that David was in Edom and, the, and Joab had gone up and absolutely slaughtered every male in Edom. That was from 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 12. That it was at that point that Hadad fled to Egypt. He was the only survivor of the royal family. And when he got to Egypt, he was given asylum by the Pharaoh there. He gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor with Pharaoh. Who does that sound like? almost sounds like Joseph a little bit, you know, where he came into the house of Pharaoh and, and uh, became much favored there. But when Hadad heard that David was dead and Joab was dead, he wanted to go back to his own country. And Pharaoh said, why? You have everything here, including the sister of my wife. And uh, Hadad said, I don't need anything here, but you've got to let me go. What was burning in the, in, the, in, in the heart of this man? Hateful bitterness and desire for revenge. And that's what he went home to do. And God used him, raised him up to oppose Solomon. You know the Lord's punishing Solomon and Israel for their sin. This is the first, an enemy on their southern border that would harass and weaken the nation over time. But then the Lord will raise up another previous defeated enemy, enemy from Damascus to oppose Solomon. And this enemy is from the northern border. So up here, 
You see Damascus. So you got an enemy here, you got an enemy here. And Solomon's now having to deal with uh, problems on both borders. And Rezin is another guy who uh, was a defeated enemy by David and his, um, his army from 2 Samuel 8.3. It says, David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore the rule at river. So Rezin served under Hadadezer and escaped after David's army defeated them. He formed his own band of marauding men and he ultimately gained control of Damascus from where he would cause great problems to Solomon. So, verse 25 says, he was an adversary to Israel in all the days of Solomon, along with all the evil that Hadad uh, did, he abhorred Israel and reigned over Aram, it says in verse 25. So, the Lord had raised up these two enemies, one from the north, one from the south, to oppose Solomon, cause problems, create problems at the border, weaken the nation for their disobedience and idolatry that came from within. But now it's going to come the third blow, the third enemy, the third piece of opposition. Look at verse 26. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had closed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak, which was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces. He said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as their father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt. And he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So the Lord's raised up a third enemy. This enemy is from within Israel. Matter of fact, this enemy is one of Solomon's own leaders that God raised up to oppose him. 
His name was Jeroboam. He was an Ephraimite. He was from Ephraim. That is the leading tribe of the northern ten tribes. He was one of Solomon's officials. And it says he rebelled against the king, and then it gives a reason why Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon. And he begins by going back to the point when Solomon built the mill, where he closed up a breach in the wall of Jerusalem. It's from chapter 9, verse 15, that we saw that. In verse 28, it says, now the man Jeroboam has, he's demonstrated a certain level of leadership and of industriousness, it says. He was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw that he was industrious, Solomon appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. That would be Ephraim and Manasseh. Solomon recognized this man and his leadership. Came about at that time. Now we're talking about at that time, we're talking about now Solomon's in his 24th year of rule of the nation. He's 44 years old. That's when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem. And he's met by this prophet of God, Ahijah. Ahijah's from Ephraim as well, 20 miles north of Jerusalem. He finds Jeroboam on the road, and in true prophet fashion, he's going to give Jeroboam a message with an illustration. The illustration he has is he takes his new cloak, as they're alone in a field, he cuts it into 12 pieces. And he says to Jeroboam, you take 10 pieces of this cloak. Because here's what it represents. The Lord God of Israel is going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands. And you're going to receive 10 tribes. Ahijah tells Jeroboam he will become king of 10 tribes in Israel. But one tribe will be left, Judah, for the sake of my servant David for the location of Jerusalem. That's 11 tribes, there's 12 tribes. Well, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was divided. Part of Benjamin went with the northern kingdom, part of Benjamin went with the southern kingdom. But Ahijah tells Jeroboam that God's gonna tear 10 tribes from Solomon's kingdom and give them to him. He says, God will divide Israel to punish them for turning away from him. In verse 33, it says, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtar, the goddess of the Sidonians. Remember, she was the Canaanite fertility goddess. And Chemosh, the god of Moas, Molak, or Milcom, the god of Ammon. Those, those were, that was the god that these nations around Israel were were sacrificing their children to. Gross idolatry. The Lord says, this nation, they've not walked in my ways. They've not done what is right before me. They've not observed my statutes or my ordinances. It's their father, David. But it does show God's mercy as well because God says he's not gonna take all of the kingdom, right? He's not going to take all of the kingdom from Solomon, and he's not going to take it from Solomon at that point. He's going to allow Solomon to finish his rule. Because why? Because of David and David's obedience and God's promise to David. God's going to allow Solomon to die before taking the kingdom from his son. It's a beautiful verse, though, in verse 36 where God says, but to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem. That my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. That would be echoed throughout the remaining kings. In 1 Kings 15, verse 4, it says, but for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 8, 19, however, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake 
of David, his servant, since he had promised to give a lamp to him through his sons always. Second Chronicles 21.7, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of his covenant, which he had made with David, since he had promised to give a lamp and his sons forever. God's faithful to keep his covenant. You know what it says in Revelation 21-23? It says, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's what this looks forward to. It's God's eternal kingdom and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, bringing Israel's, restoring Israel's glory at that point in time. The Lord expresses his unconditional covenant with David that he may always have a lamp before and in the future reestablish the throne of David in full glory in the person of Messiah. But to Jeroboam, he says, that he's going to give him the same promise that he gave Solomon. Isn't that amazing? He gives Jeroboam the same promise. He says to Jeroboam in verse 38, then it will be that one, if you listen to all that I command you, two, if you walk in my ways, three, if you do what is right by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, David the standard, I will be with you. I will build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. That amazing? Then in verse 39, he says, Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. So this might have been a concern for Jeroboam because there's an implied statement here that this kingdom's division is not permanent. That David's house would ultimately be, be reunified in the future. But as industrious and as charismatic and as capable as Jeroboam was, he proved to be an awful leader. He was corrupt. In the future, he'll only trust in himself. He'll reject the conditions of God's blessing. He will determine for himself how to rule Israel and how the nation will worship and thereby his reign will be a massive, massive failure as the nation continues its slide under Jeroboam. And it doesn't even appear that Jeroboam was willing to wait on the Lord to tear the kingdom from Solomon's son. Jeroboam, it appears, promotes a rebellion that he begins to organize, creating dissection within the northern tribes over Solomon's oppressed forced labor and taxation. And of course, Solomon's gonna respond to that. But Solomon resists the Lord's will and seeks to kill Jeroboam. Almost that picture of Saul and David, right? Where Saul began to chase David and try to kill him because he knew he was going to be the next king of Israel. So Jeroboam fled to Israel. He found asylum in Egypt. He formed an alliance with a new Pharaoh there, Shishak. And you know, Shishak would prove to be no friend to Judah in the future. Matter of fact, in 1 Kings 14, when Solomon's son begins to reign, with the single tribe he has left, King Rehoboam, that Shishak, king of Egypt, comes up against Jerusalem. He takes away the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house, takes everything, taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. You see how long this power lasted, how long these riches lasted? Well, the sad conclusion here is in verse 41. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, whatever he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. And his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. So the last year of Solomon's reigns were marked by opposition from these three men, Hadad, Rezin and Jeroboam. But the real opposition came from God, who raised up these men to punish Solomon and Israel for their idolatry. 
So Solomon died while he was still in power with the knowledge of the imminent division of his kingdom as God's punishment for his son, for his sin. You know, it was stunning that the man who recognized that he was the fulfillment of God's promise to his father David to be the descendant on the throne, this man who pleased God by praying for wisdom and leading Israel to build and dedicate his temple, who led Israel to their greatest power and prosperity as a nation, is the same man who led Israel to worship other gods and receive the consequences of their sin. Israel became a divided nation, engaged in civil war, became weak, unable to defend itself, and would finally be conquered and exiled. Stunning. Let's look at some application. First of all, what's the response to God's warning of the consequence of sin? And I, I don't want to leave this because God warns all men. There's a warning out to all men to repent of their sin and follow Jesus or suffer the consequences. If you're not in Christ, there's a clear warning in Scripture of what the consequences of rejection of the Lord will be. John 3, 36 says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, and the wrath of God will abide on him. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there's many that will enter through it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a clear warning. If you're not in Christ, there is future judgment. And that future judgment will will be eternal, it will send the unbeliever to hell. God's warning's clear, but God's offer of salvation is clear as well. Again, um, in, in the most well-known verse in the Bible, there's a clear offer from the Lord for those who would repent and believe to avoid destruction. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, what? shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. For those who will repent and believe, there's a way of salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. There's a clear warning, but there's a clear offer of salvation. But for believers, God forgives believers who greatly sin against him, but confess and repent, trusting in his mercy. You know, I don't know, there may be someone here today that's a believer that is convicted of their sin and they have no hope. They feel like they've lost their relationship with the Lord, and that's not true. Satan may want you to feel that way, But if you've repented and your faith is in the Lord, the Lord would call you to confess your sin and repent. I like the way Nehemiah used Solomon in an application to those that were sinning in Israel with foreign wives. Listen to this from Nehemiah 13, verse 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, as their children have spoke the language of Ashdod, none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them. This is Nehemiah. I contended with them. I cursed them. I struck some of them. I pulled out their hair. I made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters or sons, nor take their daughters or sons for yourselves. Why is he so agitated? Why is Nehemiah so agitated? Because he knows the consequences of their sin. But what does he say? Nehemiah says in verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him to sin. And Nehemiah says, Stop sinning in this way. Confess your sin. Repent. That the Lord might forgive you. 
Hebrews 12, 25, that quoted Solomon from Proverbs, went on, goes on to say, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, earthly fathers discipline us as they, as they knew how. It seemed best to them, but he disciplines for us are for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems to be joyful. Seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, we're going to study the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. And I believe, and I think many of the commentators you would read believe, the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's book of repentance. Both David and Solomon are forgiven by a God of horrible sin, adultery, murder, the worship of other gods. Both suffered terrible consequences for their sin. But they confessed and repented and they received God's forgiveness. Their lives were redeemed by the Lord. David's remembered as a man after God's own heart and his obedience is used as a standard for the kings that followed him. Solomon's remembered for his wisdom for the three books that God used him to write in the Old Testament. Look, there is hope for believers, even those who fall into sin. They will suffer the consequences, but God will forgive a repentant sinner. Finally, there's an exhortation to believers to battle sin, avoid sin, stay away from sin. Hebrews 12 begins this way. It begins, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surround us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Fight it. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to battle sin, not let it entangle us. Run with endurance. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Look, as believers, we're not going to be perfected till we're glorified in heaven. We're going to have a battle with sin. The writer of Hebrews would exhort you to run the race with perseverance and endurance and don't lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word and for your direction. Lord, we thank you for the examples you give us from Scripture, hard examples sometimes, Lord, men that were so faithful in their walk with you and yet turned away. Lord, we're vulnerable. If we don't think that we have that potential in our lives, we're in danger. But Lord, help us, Father, help us to remain close to you, to remain humble. Lord, help us to remain wholly devoted to you. Help us to remain with the fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom. And Lord, help our lives to bring honor and glorify to your name. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.